Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast. This is our first episode in November. That's really hard for me to believe. It feels like, especially the last two years, that time has been moving so much faster than I have. But I think we're all doing our best, and that just has to be our mantra right now. The one thing about November is, especially when you're in e-commerce and you are in retail or provide e-gift cards or anything that can be gifted to people in during holiday season, which is a lot of things, whether it's sneakers or electronics or toys or clothes, all the things, if your company sells those items, chances are you are already head down. You're probably listening to this as you're working. <laughs> I know from a lot of you that already you're starting to see holiday sales start. And that used to be later in November, but a combination of retailers over the years moving up the dates for when they want people to start shopping for the holidays, as well as this year with all of the news regarding supply chain issues, that those are things that savvy consumers are paying attention to and they want to ensure that they can get the gifts that they want to give this holiday season to their loved ones so they're shopping earlier and earlier. I know a lot of you are already starting to be head down. Others are in so many meetings planning out all the different marketing tactics and staffing and talking with your vendors about changing rule sets or changing models a little bit, tweaking with those to try to reduce manual review while increasing approvals, but also trying to keep those chargebacks low. So it's a continual balancing act. One I am very familiar with. I don't even think I've counted out how many holiday seasons I've been through in e-commerce, but it's at least 14. So I've definitely seen a lot of changes. There's at least one retailer that will often joke with me around the beginning of November that he's uh, asking his facilities manager to fit his seat for a, a seat belt before the holiday season and he's in electronics. So no doubt that is probably partially true. But now that he works from home, I'm not quite sure if he's uh, putting in the seat belt himself, I should ask. <laughs> and if you're listening, you'll be getting a kick out of that. But anyway, I know that is top of mind for a lot of you. And I pulled a couple news stories for today to be aligned with that. Before diving into those, I just kind of wanted to let you know a little bit more about what this second season is going to bring. I mentioned on the last episode that the Fraudology podcast is now a part of a, a podcast network. And that's called Rolled Up, ne Rolled Up Podcast Network. And I'm excited to be a part of them because they focus on e-commerce in various ways. And also, I have someone now to bounce stuff off of. And I'll say, well, should I do this or that or what's best or what can I do? And so that's been really fun to have those conversations. And what we're going to be going forward with for at least the next few months to see what you think is one episode a week will be around 20, 30 minutes, either talking about industry news 
or having uh, a deep dive on a specific topic or issue. I already have digital gift cards and also loyalty fraud on the list for talking about soon. And then also it'll be a combination. So there'll be either and. So there might be some of one, some of the other, or just one per episode. But the other part we'll do is the popular AKA episodes, which are Ask Carice Anything. And on those, I often will read the LinkedIn messages that I get from people asking questions that I would love to write a very long email replying back with all kinds of great information, but just don't have the time. So I select the ones that I know people will, other people will learn from and that won't be specific. And I never associate a company name or a person's name with those questions or with any issues or analogy that I give, because if it is one thing that I value in this world more than my child and my family, it's the fact that I have so many merchants trust. And I know that trust is earned in drops, but lost in buckets. And so I really, that's the filter I put almost every project through and every initiative that I do through my business. Is this going to benefit merchants? And is this going to continue the trust that they've invested in me? Because it just means the world to me. And I know it, it's very rare. Those are things that you have to look forward to. And then the second episode a week will be an interview with somebody from the industry who I really think you can learn from. A lot of times I really enjoy talking to people with different perspectives and who have had unique experiences within fraud. And so that's a wide bucket, but a lot of times there'll be people that you probably haven't heard of necessarily, but who throughout my career I have got, uh, come to trust or have found learned things from them that I think you can learn from too. It gets a little extra tricky because there are a lot of merchants that I would love to interview, but sometimes their communications teams are not as thrilled about it. But with that said, if you are a practitioner in fraud, if you are a fraud fighter, especially on the merchant side, who can talk about those things and you're able to talk about them from your company, let me know because I really enjoy hearing who, who may be able to go. And I am a firm believer that we can all learn at least something from each person in the industry, no matter how long they've been in the industry. And it's just so important for all of us to stay connected and informed because the fraudsters are doing the same thing. They're doing that through forums. They're doing that through their own educational like YouTube uh, videos and TikToks and raps and all kinds of things. I'm not going to rap for you, but I will definitely <laughs> uh, share some information on the podcast. Trust me, I'm sparing you all by not rapping. So with that, I really am excited for this Tuesday, November 9th, where I'm going to be releasing part one of an interview with uh, someone who has worked for issuing banks, two of the biggest issuing banks in the U.S. actually, in their fraud investigations and fraud prevention departments, as well as he worked for a little bit for a, one of the largest retailers in the U.S. And that is Robbie Perry at CentiLink. I have really enjoyed knowing Robbie for several years. He became a really trusted resource for me when I would have clients or other merchants reach out and ask me questions that 
really could only be answered by an issuer, especially specific ones. So we have half of the puzzle and we think we know what happened, but can you check actually happened? Things like that. And he was just so helpful. And now that he's at Centilink, he's able to talk about some of his experiences. And guys, it was just supposed to be one interview and one episode. And we only got through a third of the questions for the first episode. And it's so fascinating. I think that we'll touch on things that you've always wanted to know, but just haven't been able to have the answers because a lot of times the issuing side and the merchant side are so siloed. So make sure that you subscribe, that you're subscribed to the Fraudology podcast on whatever podcast app you use, whether it's Apple or Spotify or Stitcher or Amazon, whichever one is your favorite, subscribe. And that way you'll know when an episode comes out next and you won't have to worry about forgetting about it. I think this is one you're going to want to share with your team and colleagues and feel free to share it on LinkedIn always. So however you, you know, get that, I just want to make sure that everybody knows when that comes out and then it will, the following Tuesday, we will have part two. He so graciously gave me a second hour of his time. So I'm very excited about that. As we continue to improve and tweak this podcast, I definitely want to hear from you on what you love and how we can change it. And with that, I'm going to dive into the news. I think I need to talk to my producer about having some kind of breaking news sound because it just feels weird not having a done or something like that. <laughs> but the very first story I uh, want to talk about is something that I've had several conversations with merchants on and offline about. And that is that the FBI, along with several other federal entities from the US and the UK, executed a search warrant on the Chinese POS giant Pax Technologies. So Pax Technology is one of the three biggest uh, companies that provide credit card terminals for uh, card present in-store transactions. So as a consumer, I'm sure you put your credit card or your debit card into, now we're chipping it, but it used to be swiping. Whether you're swiping or putting in a chip or tapping it, you're using a credit card terminal at the grocery store, at the gas station, if you go into the convenience store, just all those different things. And Oftentimes they'll be from one of three companies, Verifone, Ingenico, or Pax Technology. Pax Technology is the third largest and they have more than 60 million POS terminals in use in 120 companies. So they're not small. Uh, they are based in China, but they do have a warehouse in the US out of the state of Florida. And that's what was rated is the word that's been being used. I don't, I was going to try to think of a different word, but that's, you know, they execute a search warrant. They rated the warehouse house. And there is a lot of speculation around what happened. So it should be noted that the FBI has not actually come out and said specifically what they were looking for, why they had a search warrant, etc. But I do think it's notable that so many different federal law enforcement agencies were involved. So I, I've just found, especially recently, that a lot of the resources are pretty stretched thin. And so cases have to have substantial amount of evidence or at least, you know, enough to need more evidence in order to have a search warrant in order to even be prioritized for federal law enforcement for one agency, let alone several. And it was the FBI, the NCIS, the Naval Criminal Intelligence or Investigative Service, I think is what that stands for. I know there's a very popular TV show in the U.S. by that title, but I don't actually know what it stands for, as well as MI5 in the U.K. and a few others. So that 
caught my attention. Krebs on security. So Brian Krebs as well as Bloomberg broke the news. It happened on Wednesday, October 27th. And here's what they said. I found two pretty concise paragraphs I wanted to read to you. So it says a post by the security investigative organization alleged that Krebs on security heard from a trusted source that the FBI began investigating PACs after a major U.S. payment processor started asking questions about unusual network packets originating from the company's payment terminals. According to that source, the report continued, the payment processor found that the PAX terminals were being used both as a malware dropper, a repository for malicious files, and as command and control locations for staging attacks and collecting information. So essentially what that payment processor alleged, and there have been separate articles that have said that FIS and WorldPay, which are now one company, are recalling all of the PAX terminals that their customers use, the people that use their payment processing, and replacing it with one of the other brands. So if you put two and two together, the payment processor that the FBI mentions is most likely WorldPay and FIS Global, but that's could just be some conjecture still, but I always want to be careful when I'm telling the news that or talking about news that I'm just reading what has been written and vetted by other journalists that have journalistic code. So I think that's important to say. I will be putting post uh, links into the stories within the show notes if you want to go read the full stories. The reason why I thought this was important, so I first learned about it from a merchant who said that they received an impassioned email from their CISO last Wednesday asking if any of the credit card, the POS terminals that they have at their in-store locations if they were owned by PAX. This particular merchant not only did that, they also called their payment processor to double check that the software and the hardware weren't running through any of PAX's rails, etc. Typically with physical credit card terminals, and this is actually where I got my very first start in the payments industry many moons ago, I was actually troubleshooting these and downloading them and fixing them. So I, I have a pretty good understanding of what they do. They're a set gateway, but for internal, so they're like the phone that connects the payment information to the processor that then goes to the issuer, etc. The credit card terminal itself is typically either purchased in full as a one-time payment by merchants or it's leased out by their payment processor. But once a merchant or once a, yeah, once a retailer has a credit card terminal in their store, most of the time they're getting any kind of troubleshooting information or any, their relationship with that terminal is actually through their payment processor. They don't have a relationship with the manufacturer of the terminal, but those terminals still have, you know, there's some of their software in it. And what the concern was is that the these particular terminals may be being used as a repository for malicious files, as well ability to stage attacks and collect credit card information and, and send it back to their home office. I'm not, or to their systems. I'm not hundred percent sure because this is again alleged through Krebs on security is the one that broke the news. This is what we understand it. And I do think that there is some, the connection to China is also something that is of concern to some of the people involved. So if this is something that is concerning to you, I think that, and if you have in-store locations, I think it is well within your right to determine if any of your POS systems within your stores are using PAX terminals or if they're using Verifone or Ingenico or any of the other smaller companies. And then if you are, 
you know, call your payment processor and ask them if you can exchange it. It can be a bit of a headache if you have a lot of them and they're all set up in different ways, but it actually isn't probably as difficult as you would think. It's much easier to replace a credit card terminal than it is to change your gateway for online commerce. That would be the number one thing. And then also you contacting your payment processor just to make sure that they're not using their rails or their software. I don't want to necessarily encourage anyone to stop using a particular product, but I do think it's important that this information be shared. I also want to note that I posted about this on LinkedIn on Thursday, the 28th, and within a day or two, I had a comment from someone in marketing for PAX Technology who encouraged me to read their corporate statement. I did. It seemed like it was more of a letter to shareholders to encourage them to continue to invest more than it was any information for the payment processing community to be able to assure them that everything's okay or that this information is not alarming. But I will also post that their response in the show notes as well. I think it's important before there's any convictions or anything like that to provide both sides. So that is that story. The next one is the headline is NRF says online sales will account for 26% of holiday retail spending. And they expect that amount to be $226 billion. Now, obviously this is all speculation, but the NRF has a lot of pretty reliable calculations and have often been used to help predict where retail is going. Full disclosure, I still work with CNP on a very, you know, need when they need me basis. So not all the time, but I do still work with them and they are uh, working closely with NRF on their NRF Protect show in June of 2022. So a bit of a relationship to NRF, but very, it's like <laughs> tangential. There's like several different connections. It's, it's a dotted line. But like I said before, savvy consumers are going to be shopping early. This is the time of year that if that really honestly, hopefully you've been preparing for a while, this wouldn't be the time that I would recommend evaluating a lot of new systems new. Now, if you're already in the middle of an RFI process or already in a process of being onboarded with a vendor, certainly continue. But this usually isn't the time that retailers say, I wonder what's out there. I just want to look for a new solution. Usually it's okay. We have our tech, our risk stack. We know the process. We're going to optimize it. We may change our rules a little bit. We may uh, tweak with the machine learning to try to make sure that we are increasing authorizations, decreasing fraud, all of those balancing acts that we know so well. But uh, I actually was brought in by a, a pretty good sized retailer a couple of years ago as a consultant in October to help them prepare for the holiday season. And that was a rush. And I was working very long days and traveling a lot to try to get them just above water so that their customer experience was a good one and so that their chargebacks would be low. And I'm gratefully, I had some pretty epic results there, but I say that as something like even October is a little late, but there are some things that you can do to improve and optimize your processes. So whether that's assessing, do we need to add a couple of manual reviewers? Do we need to outsource to a company that provides order rescue or outsource manual review when you have extra volume? Do you need to add a chargeback provider at the end so that maybe you can free up your analysts to 
not respond or accept chargebacks and instead look at front end transaction monitoring. All kinds, there are things and tweaks that can be done now that should be done, but the big infrastructure changes, eh, hopefully those are not needed right now, is too much of a mess. And I think it's also really important to talk to other areas of your business and to align with the business goals. I'll be talking about that so much more in a future episode, especially hoping to secure a pretty awesome merchant for that interview. Anyway, I think those are some of the things that you can do. Uh, fraud. Does, uh, this is another thing I just wanted to mention. I've seen this in studies. I didn't actually pull a specific study before hopping on the microphone, but I've had conversations with people that have been in this industry a long time too, and it's all pretty congruent that we all agree that fraud as a percentage to sales in e-commerce doesn't actually exceed during the holiday season. However, it, it stays pretty consistent, but what does exceed is the number of sales and by number, though, that you may have a number of fraud increase, but you're not going to have a percentage to sales. So it's pretty consistent, which I think is interesting. But essentially, if I'm using one of my many analogies, it's as if the haystack got so much bigger and there are more needles. And so it's, it's harder to find, but it's important, definitely. But I think sometimes... People who are just looking at we need to reduce chargebacks are going to be inclined to cancel more good orders and that impacts your customer experience. And a lot of times you're not just canceling that one order for your company, you're essentially canceling that customer's lifetime value. So as well as customer acquisition costs that your marketing team you know, invested in all kinds of things. So there's just things to think about that a lot of times we can think, oh, this is risky, that's risky, but there's a lot of orders during the holiday season that could be seen as risky. A lot of times they're not shipping them to their house. A lot of times, especially these days, they're using anonymous emails through Apple or other things. And so keeps us on our toes, but I have faith that you all will keep up and do a great job. Obviously, you know, and so here was another uh, article that I thought that is related to this, but I thought it was worth considering. And that is around e-gift cards. And a lot of times we see e-gift cards especially be popular the last few weeks before the holidays, even the last few days before the holidays or the same day as the holiday because they're instant delivery and they allow the user or the person who's being gifted to be able to pick out what they want. But this headline caught my eye because it said supply chain issues will make e-gift cards more popular than ever. I was actually surprised I didn't think about that myself, but it makes perfect sense, especially for those consumers that aren't as savvy, that aren't starting to shop in October for uh, gifts that they're going to give in December. It's just another example that e-gift cards are going to greatly increase. In a report done by Riskified looking at the 2020 holiday season, they predict e-gift card sales will rise 27% in 2021. That's almost exactly consistent with the percentage that the NRF expects the holiday portion or the sale, the portion of sales to e-commerce during the holidays. So of all the money being spent in, e uh, in retail for the holiday season, 26% will be spent online. That was the last article, but this one's saying e-gift card sales will rise 27% more than 2020. In 2020, I think there were a lot of e-gift cards, especially because a lot of families and friends weren't celebrating the holidays together. This was pre-vaccine. So 
Anyway, I think everyone is aware that e-gift cards are high risk and high volume. They're very risky because oftentimes they're shipping to a different email address than the person who is buying the gift card. They can be used for money laundering. They are anonymous. They can be transferred. There's a lot of reasons why these are risky, but there's also a lot of reasons why your company needs to take them because I mean, even if you have a relatively high percentage of fraud on the e-gift cards, still at least 90, 90%, and that's being conservative, probably 95% of those orders are good for your company. So always something to keep in mind, but it is money, right? So if you find that an order was fraudulent for an e-gift card after the fact, and after that money's been spent, you basically gave that money out for free to the people who purchased the cards on stolen credit cards. Uh, a couple things, just little notes, and I could go do a whole deep dive on this and I will be, but I think it's really, I think it's important to separate your rules or your machine learning for, um, if you have e-gift cards out by product, because the behavior of fraudsters, as well as the behavior of consumers are going to be different if they're purchasing an e-gift card versus a uh, retail product. Other things are to make sure that you can know that's the case and that you can look at different quantifiers of the item. So for instance, if you are a retailer that sells clothing, you're typically on the clothing orders aren't going to be looking for a gift message, right? You're not going to be looking and you have a shipping address and you have other information. For e-gift cards, you really just have a delivery email address and there's, but there's a gift message, which by the way, we used to tell people if they leave the gift message blank, or if it's just a very generic, like three word thing, like happy birthday, or I guess that's two words, but congratulations on baby or whatever that is, that used to be risky. But now, uh, we said that enough times that fraudsters learned and now they can sometimes write like full on novels or copy and paste parts of books or do all kinds of things to try to trip up any kind of machine learning that was looking at the number of characters in the gift message, constant cat and mouse always. But those are some reasons why those should be separate because there's different factors. There's different identifiers. There's different behavior. Also looking at the difference between legitimate gift card sale behavior and fraud behavior. Diving into those details and doing an analysis, you may be surprised what's actually risky and what isn't. I shared this story last year, but I, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was asked by the head of a chair, a local charity that I work with often, if I could provide uh, money to a single mom who was a bus driver who didn't have any money for groceries. I wanted to send a gift card to a grocery store to make sure that's where the money went. I went online to an e-gift card provider, one that was reputable. It wasn't a marketplace. It was directly through the retailer and the grocer. And I put in my email address, which I have had for almost 10 years and have made a lot of purchases with and all of that and put in the recipient's email address and all the other information was absolutely correct. The only thing I can think of that may have been risky is the fact that our email addresses were different, but that's very normal for good orders. For gift cards, my order was canceled and I was kind of like, what? I'm not used to being a false decline or a false positive. 
So I, because I'm so lucky to know so many merchants, I reached out to the head of fraud for that company and said, Hey, just curious. Was I blacklisted? Like what happened? And they said, yeah, our fraud provider canceled that order. And I said, can you reinstate it? And they said, no, they didn't have that ability. So I then had to go to an app that you can send money to people in real time, P2P money transferring apps. And just trust that's where the money was gonna go for this mom. And I'm sure it was, just I would have preferred to give her a gift card. But that's just one example of fraud technology or merchants not really diving into the details of both. You might just look at the behavior of chargebacks, but it's also important to look at the good behavior so you can recognize the outliers. Uh, and know that these decisions do have real world impacts. And so they're important. And I know sometimes it's better safe to be sorry. And other times for some companies, they say, we don't care about the chargebacks. We just need to approve all the orders. So you're going to have to find your own balance. But being able to make data informed decisions is going to help you provide the best level of customer experience to your legitimate customers as well as sales to your business and those are really the goals uh, during the holiday season and year-round for e-commerce that is it for our episode today i could always go on but i think that is enough news for this week i again am really looking forward to you guys getting to hear the interview with robbie so make sure you subscribe and if you're enjoying the podcast please leave a review and rate the podcast on apple Podcasts. it really does help other people who have similar interests find this podcast So with that, I look forward to talking with you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.